0: We'll begin in verse 27. You'll find that on page 862 in the pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you just to take that Bible there in the pew rack as our gift to you. Luke 6, verse 27. uh, We're going to be working through about, let's see, 10 verses here. We're going to go verse by verse, as is our custom. and, And I think you'll be aided this morning to have the Word of God open in your lap during our time together as we continually refer to it. And so Luke chapter 6, verse 27, please hear now the word of God. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. We thank You, Father, for Your mercy on us. We thank You that You have done a great and mighty work in our lives. We thank You that even today You're working, calling us together, that we might praise You and worship You and hear from Your Word and hear testimony of the work that You are doing. And now we come and we we confess You to be our God and Jesus to be our Lord. And as our Lord, we submit ourselves today to His teaching. We gladly bend our knee to the Word of Christ. And ask that we would be submissive and obedient to our Lord. Out of our great love for Him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ernest Gordon was a U.S. POW who suffered in the infamous Japanese work camp at the River Kwai. In fact, he suffered so much that these conditions brought him to the verge of death. He writes, I was headed for the death house. I was so ill that I didn't much care. But I was hardly prepared what I found there. The death house had been built at one of the lowest points of the camp. The monsoon was on, and as a result, the floor of the hut was a sea of mud. And then there were the smells, tropical ulcers eating into flesh and bone latrines overflowed, unwashed men, untended men, sick men, humanity gone sour, humanity rotting. The last shreds of my numb sensibilities rebelled against my surroundings, against the bedbugs, the lice, the stenches, the blood, mucus, excrement, stains, sleeping platforms, the dying and the dead bedmates, the victory of corruption. This was the lowest level of life. Well, Gordon did not die. In fact, it was during that time in this work camp that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, many in his section did. Many bowed their knee to Jesus. And and as they did, they began to love one another and support each other. And their love grew for each other. And as their love grew for their fellow POWs, their great hatred for those who tormented them also grew. In fact, he was confronted by what was going on in his heart when he read the gospel. He said, we learn from the gospels that Jesus had his enemies just as we had ours. But there was this difference. He loved his enemies. He prayed for them. We hated our enemies. We could see how wonderful it was that Jesus forgave in this way, yet for us to do the same seemed beyond our attainment. It's here in this sermon that Jesus is giving that uh, many have called in Luke's account the Sermon on the Plain or the parallel uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, okay, you want to be my disciples. That's good. But you should know what that means. You should know what it means to, to live as a follower of mine. If you want to know what Christianity is supposed to look like, uh, you probably go no better place than, than this sermon here. As Jesus says, you know what a disciple is? Well, he's someone that... That is often poor and hungry and sad. And, and we consider both the physical realities of that and the spiritual truths behind it. And then he goes on and says, you know, a disciple is also persecuted. A disciple will be hated and, and excluded and reviled and shunned. He'll be called a bigot. He'll be called a uh, hateful. He'll be called all sorts of evil on my name, and that disciple, when that happens, is to bless, he feel blessed, and he is to, to rejoice in his heart, and he is to, in fact, leap for joy, for great is his reward in heaven. So we consider that last week, especially as it pertains to the cultural revolution that's taking place in our country, that when our country turns against truth and begins to call us names and begins to exclude us, we will consider ourselves blessed. As God loosens our hold upon this world and that we will rejoice and leap for joy for our reward is great in heaven. And so we thought about what does that look like in our hearts? How do we respond? But now Jesus begins to talk about how do we respond not just inside of us when persecution comes upon us, but how do we respond to those who actually call us the names? How do we respond to those who hate us? How do we respond to our enemies? The natural reaction, of course, is to hate your enemies to want to hurt them back, or at least to avoid them. This is how the Jews lived. They were, of course, to love their neighbor, but they defined their neighbor as the fellow Jew, leaving them to hate those who were not. This is how the Romans lived. They hate people who were unlike them. This is pretty much how every community has lived uh, in the history of humanity. We love our own, and we hate those who are outside of our group. And often, if we're honest, this is how Christians act. We love each other, but we're very angry with the world. We're angry that they're destroying our country. We're angry that we're snubbed or we're cut off on the road or we're angry with the way someone has spoken to us. The most of the time when you and I are wrong, the way we respond is anger, not love. And Jesus stands up and he begins to preach a sermon and says, if you want to follow me, you cannot act like that. You cannot hate your enemies. You want to live in my kingdom. Then you don't seek money, you don't seek comfort, you you don't seek fame, and you don't seek to hate those who hate you. In fact, you love them. You love your enemies. This once again seems unnatural to us, doesn't it? This is the backwards kingdom, the upside down kingdom. It doesn't seem uh, even possible for us. And so let's consider it today. Let's consider what this, this core ethic in God's kingdom is, love. And and not just what it looks like, but how can we find power to do it? Where can we find the strength to do it? But before we do so, before we look at this passage, I think it would be helpful for you to think about who you can apply these truths to. So the whole context is to love your enemy. So I wonder, who's your enemy? I think it would be helpful to think about that. Who Who's not c- certainly the... One who hurts you or persecutes you, certainly that would be an enemy, but but the one who who hates you or curses you, the one who opposes you. It may be a a demeaning boss or a scheming coworker, a complaining neighbor, alienated former friend. It may be a gossiping church member or an ill-tempered spouse or a rebellious child. I think it would be well to to have a a vision as to who we can apply these truths. In fact, you might even want to list them. Maybe there's more than one. Right, You can write that down right there, unless they're sitting next to you. You probably don't want to do it then. Right? But you would do well to have a vision. Think about who this is, that we might consider how we might love them. Well, Jesus begins by saying the love that we are to have for them is to be an active love. An active love. Note verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Often we think about love in, in a passive sense in our land. We, we think love is something that happens to us. We think that we, we just happen to fall in love or we just happen to love someone and it's beyond our control. There's not much we can do about that. Well, unfortunately, the Bible is, is totally contrary to that notion. In fact, the greatest commandment is to love, right? And the second is like this, to love your neighbor, to love God and your neighbor. The whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. God is constantly commanding us to love as if it were in our control not something that we're passive. In fact, he tells us here specifically to love our enemies, and he explains three ways in which we can love them. He begins by saying we should do good to those who hate you, as we see in verse uh, 27. And so those outside the kingdom, your enemy, that perhaps you have hopefully thought of, you are to do good to them, you know, that coworker or that boss or spouse or classmate. Don't avoid them, Jesus says. Don't simply uh, agree to endure them, but you are to do good to them. You are to take initiative and strategize ways in which you can seek their good. Practical ways. Paul says in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Loving them means practical acts of kindness. The Bible tells us God sends the rain and the sunshine. You who follow God should give them something to eat or water. Do good to those who hate you. One man who understood this truth was a man named William Dirk. He was an Anabaptist in the 16th century. And the modern-day Anabaptists today would be the Mennonites. Well, unfortunately, Anabaptists at that time were persecuted both by the Catholics and the new Protestants. In the 1530s, more than 50,000 Anabaptists were killed for their faith. It was in 1569 that William Dirk was running for his life from a deputy who wanted to arrest him and take him to the authorities. And he was in the middle of the winter, and he was running across a frozen river. And he heard, just as he was about to enter the forest on the other side of the the river, a crack in the eyes. He stopped and turned and saw the man chasing him was in the water. And he knew immediately that this man would die if he did not rescue him. He wrestled for a moment. Is this God's deliverance? Would you think that? I'm running for my life because of my religious convictions, and now all of a sudden this man falls into a frozen river? Is this not God saving me? Well, that was not Dirk's conclusion. What came to his heart was that Jesus says, I'm to do good to those who hate me. So he saved the man. And despite the man's protest, Dirk was burned at the stake for his faith. Do good to those who hate you. And, and this is not just simply miscellaneous acts of good. This, by the way, may mean confronting them in their sin. Right? Who, well, someone wrongs you and you think maybe I'm going to get you back. Or you think, well, I'm going to just forget it. I'm not going to bring it up. And both are really selfish. Both are kind of self-love. You're seeking your own comfort. But Jesus says, no, you you do good to them. And sometimes that means telling someone they're sinning. It's not good to let them continue to sin. And so sometimes that means approaching them and and explaining to them what they're doing. Well, the second way in which we love actively is to bless those who curse you. You see that in verse 28. And so when you're verbally attacked, you're cursed. people speak evil against you. They malign you. They gossip about you, spread half-truths about you. You respond not by holding your tongue. You know, often that's what we do We do when we pat ourselves on the back. When we do it, we just don't say anything, even though we're burning up inside with hurt pride. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to just simply be quiet. I want you to bless them. I want you to give a gentle response to angry words. Someone comes up to you and says, you know, you're, you're such and such. Right? And you respond, I'm sorry you feel that way. Can you help me change? So someone comes up to you and says, you know what Lenny said about you? You say, really? That doesn't sound like Lenny. Wow, Lenny's such a nice guy. I don't think he would say that. Let's go talk to Lenny and figure this out. See, not criticism for criticism, not curse for curse or gossip for gossip, but he says bless them. And Paul would write in Ephesians 4.31, it says, Let no, no unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only that which is good for building each other up, that it may give grace in time of need. We bless those who curse us. Sometimes, once again, that means confronting them in their sin. I appreciate the story that R.C. Sproul said that he was at a conference at one time when, when uh, this Christian conference erupted and a lot of name-calling and anger. There was one theologian in particular that was being accused of these hidden motives by a pastor at the conference. And the re- theologian's response was noteworthy to Sproul. He did not grow red-faced or raise his voice or say, how dare you, who think you are, etc. Instead, he softly said to the man in front of them all, sir, you are slandering me. And it was that that quiet response that this man immediately understood what he was doing and repented right there. And it was a a source of unity for that conference. Sometimes the loving thing is not simply to uh, absorb it, but to warn someone when they're sinning. Well, the third act of love that Jesus explains is we are to pray for those who abuse you. I think this is very important to understand, especially those who are in abusive situations. Jesus does not say, stay in that situation. He says, pray for them. Right? You can pray at a distance. Right? You don't need to be in the same home to pray for someone. And so we are, when someone abuses us, we are to pray for them. In fact, I think this seems to be the deepest form of love. I could give you a cup of water and still not love you in my heart. I could say nice things to you and still hate you. And, but when he says pray for them what he is saying he's calling us to drain all our ill will towards people and want them to flourish and to express that even when they're not around as we intercede to them for God I think what we do usually is is we lay in bed at night and replay the abuse replay the situation replay the name calling and we think well if I, if I was just if I just could have said that well that would have really got them and we want to like we want a time machine and go back right and and give the zinger if I just if i I just responded in that way. That would have really solved the problem. And, and we replay over and on. 30 years later, we're replaying that same scene. You know what that's called? Enslavement. Prison. And Jesus said, no, when you, you lay in bed, don't feel sorry for yourself. Feel sorry for them. And pray for them. God, move in them. And God, heal them and help them and save them. Father, I don't know what made them this way. But use my life to be like Jesus. Use me as a tool to transform them. Pray for yourself, right? Because sometimes you you want to choke the person. God help me. Work in my life. Remember Stephen who's being stoned to death, and there he falls to his knees right on the verge of death. And what does he say? Father, do not hold this sin against them. Pray for those who abuse you. You see what Jesus calls is this active love. We love by doing good. We love with our words, by blessing. We love with our heart, by praying. This is what Christ has called the church to be. This is what he calls his Christians to be. When you find a church that does this, you have found the church that Jesus has died to create, a church in which good triumphs over evil. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 12 and verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think what he means by that is don't let someone else's evil produce evil in you. Don't let their evil produce evil thoughts in you, evil desires in your heart. Don't let their sin begin to govern you. I remember years ago, it was right after I preached Romans 12, a couple of weeks prior, that a man came to the church I was pastoring. And he, he, I never met this man before, and he, and he waited patiently after the service to speak to me. And he said, excuse me, sir, you don't know me, but your church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Right? And, and I, I t- was it nice, flowery thoughts in my heart when he said that? Uh, I immediately felt evil rising in my heart. I immediately felt, how dare you? I mean, you know, who are you? And what was happening was his evil was producing evil in me. His evil was beginning to govern me. And I don't want to give people that power. Don't you? I want to give Jesus that power. I want Jesus to govern my thoughts and Jesus to govern my heart. And when we experience evil, we ought to say, you're not my Lord. I will not obey you. Jesus is my Lord. He controls my heart. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good and active good and active love. And Jesus explains this love is not only active, but it's sacrificial as He gives us these three illustrations of sacrificial love. The first being give the other cheek. We see it in verse 29. To the one who strikes you on your cheek, offer the other also. Again, I don't believe Jesus is saying let someone keep hitting you. I don't think he's saying, hit me again, I'm still breathing. I, I think it's not a call to endure abuse. And what, the reason why it's not loving to let someone keep abusing you. In fact, Jesus, you know, he was struck on the cheek. He stood before the high priest and, and there was all these accusations, and Jesus finally spoke up and says, by the way, where are the witnesses? And immediately the, the, the servant uh, slapped him across the cheek. And, and Jesus did not say, well, here's the other cheek for you to hit. And you know what he said? He says, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? He confronts him with love. And so it's not to keep enduring abuse, but it is a call not to retaliate against people. It is a call not to hit back. In fact, the issue I don't think here is of abuse. The issue is of humiliation, right? You, you don't slap someone on the cheek to hurt them. You slap them on the cheek to humiliate them. I'd rather you punch me than slap me, to be perfectly honest. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, now people will be right-handed on this day. It was not looked highly to be left-handed. To hit someone on the right cheek with your right hand, you have to use your backhand. Right? And so it is a sign of disrespect, a sign of humiliation. Jesus is saying, endure these, these insults with peace, endure them with patience. In fact, in this culture, they, they didn't greet you with shaking hands, right? We, we, we walk up to each other and we extend a hand and we greet each other and we lock hands and shake it. They, they, they would greet you by walking up and turning their cheek to you because they, they want you to kiss their cheek. And that's how they say hello. That's what a friend does. He turns the cheek to you. And if you walked up to someone and you turned the cheek to him in order to get kissed, and rather than kiss, you got hit across the face, Jesus says, well, ask him to kiss the other side of the cheek. In other words, extend the hand back out. Right? Don't let their insults rob you of your opportunity to love them. Don't fight back, even if it requires sacrifice. And so if you're humiliated you your insult, don't demand your right. Don't, don't be so quick to defend your honor. Don't let their slap stop you from loving them. He goes on and says, give your possessions. Look in verse 29. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, by the way, they didn't have walk-in closets in this day. right? They, they didn't go in and think, well, you know, that doesn't match with that. And, and that's dirty. And I need to iron that or whatever it is. Right? They had a coat. And the coat actually doubled as their blanket. And then they had a tunic, which was their under, it was their underwear. And, and Jesus says, if someone comes and they take your, your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Now, he's not, he's not saying to them, help people rob you. He's not saying if someone comes to rob you, you say, well, by the way, let me show you where the safe is and I could open that up for you. That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying that, that, because it's not loving, by the way, to, to help people to do this to you. But he's saying, love people so much that when they take your things, that you, you love them more than your things. And, and even if they take your things, with great hatred in their heart, your love for them is greater than the possession of the things that you have. Matthew Henry, the, the great commentary, once was robbed. Many of you have his, his commentary in the whole Bible. Uh, Matthew Henry lived a couple hundred years ago, and he was uh, robbed of all his money, and he wrote in his journal that night, let me be thankful for these things. First, I have never been robbed before. Second, although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, although they took all I had, it wasn't very much. And last, it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Give your possessions. Lastly, Jesus talks about this sacrificial love by saying, give your money. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you, From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I don't think Jesus is saying that we should give to a con man or someone who says, yeah, give me your money, I'm going to go blow it on drugs or whatever. That's not a way to love them. But what he is saying is be ready and willing to meet people's needs. Someone comes to you with a need, Christian, you are to respond with generosity, outrageous generosity, and not expecting to get back. You're to give to them, not so that you can have something in return. God did not give to you. So that you could give something back to him. Now we are to give like God. And then finally, Jesus comes and God summarizes all in verse thirty-one, what we call the Golden Rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I I, I was uh, raised on the Golden Rule. Uh, most of you know I was not raised as a Christian. There was there was no Christian in my home as we were growing up. But the Golden Rule was uh, was spoken to me on, at least on a monthly basis, quite often, much more. My father it was a very moral man, a man of a very strong sense of integrity and and rightness. And and whenever I would get in trouble. He would pull me aside and he would say to me, Stephen, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, it was even the King James version. And it was just, and, and out it came. And, and I just thought, well, dad, I mean, my dad writes Proverbs. This is pretty cool. He's, uh, he's brilliant. And, and I, I remember when I was 16 and, and starting to learn about Jesus and I was reading his, his Bible. And I remember reading this passage and I fell out of my chair. It's like, wait a second, Jesus said that. And I ran to my father, and I said, well, You didn't make this up. This was Jesus' rule, right? You stole this from Jesus. You never gave him credit. And uh, and, and this beautiful rule. By the way, my dad loves Jesus now and still loves his rule and uh, serves as a deacon in his church. Praise the Lord for his grace upon my family. But Jesus says there's a way of living. There's a rule, a way of living. And it's don't worry how people treat you, but you should be more concerned with how... You, how you would want to be treated and then do that to other people and jesus saying stop stop worrying about your hurt feelings you know the root of all our conflicts is just this pride this sense of self-preservation jesus says stop that in fact start treating people the way that you want to be treated and and i think uh, uh, the common rule that we live by not the golden rule the common rule is i want to get whatever i can i'm going to do whatever i can get away with And we live our life. I mean, it's just even kids getting in the car and who they're going to fight for the best seat. Who gets the best seat? Who gets to sit up front or whatever? It's like, what uh, what do I want? That's what I'm going to go after. And Jesus says, wait a second. That's not how to live. You should live by thinking about other people and actually doing for them what you would want to have done to you. And the context, of course, is especially in referring to enemies. And so I think Jesus is ultimately saying, if you were an enemy of God, how would you want to be treated by a Christian? Right? If you were outside God's grace, if you were outside a relationship with God, and you encountered a Christian, how would you want that Christian to treat you so that you can clearly see the gospel? Live that way. Do unto others so that they can see the gospel in you. Do as you would want to see. Sacrifice for them. Love them. Expecting nothing in return. I wonder, are you quick like I am to defend your honor? Demand respect. Get even. Or is your love sacrificial? In fact, Jesus drives home the point when he uh, thirdly considers that this love that we're to have is an uncommon love. Note verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love him. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. You see, Jesus is saying, if you love just like uh, the, the world, just like everybody else loves, you're not loving the way I commanded you. And he gives us these three illustrations of worldly love. And he asks, you know, what's so special about this love? What what credit is there? What benefit is there? You know, in other words, our love needs to exceed that of the world. The world says, I'll love you if you love me. I will do good to you if you do good to me. Everyone loves this way. Everyone. And Jesus says, no, your love is to far exceed that. If you love people only because of what they do to you, you're, you're not loving them for their sake. You're loving them for your own sake. And he challenges those who claim to be his. And he says, if your love is no better than those who don't claim to be mine, what credit is that to you? Where is the benefit? Where, where is the work of God in your life? When I think about this, I'm, I'm reminded of a story that I read some time ago about a missionary couple who were on furlough. And, and they were back on their stateside assignment after a very tiring stint on the foreign fields, and they have been looking forward to this time. And there was just this anticipation, when can we get back home and rest and recover and restore? In fact, for the first time in their missionary career, they actually didn't bounce around from missionary apartment to missionary apartment. They actually were able to get their own place, a, a townhouse. It was a new townhouse, and there was a little patio out back, just a small little, little plot, and, and yet this was um, the dream for this uh, missionary woman, this wife. And the patio became the focus of all her attention. She, she bought furniture for it and put flowers out there and decorated it and put a rug out there, and she just spent all her time out there. It was a little place of refuge. It was her place of peace. Well, after a few months, some neighbors moved in, and uh, the best way to describe them, according to this woman, was that they were coarse. They played loud music day and night. There was a constant flow of obscenities coming in through the shared wall of the townhouse. They would urinate in the front yard in daylight, and they destroyed her peace. And she just kind of bore down and said, I'm just going to endure it. I'm just going to try to find that peace even in the midst of it, until crisis came. She came home one day, and the neighbor's children had come over to her patio. And with orange spray paint pans had sprayed the walls and the floor and all the furniture. And she was furious. And she was distraught. She said, I felt hatred that I did not know rise up in my heart. But at that same time, these words rose as well. If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? And so she fled to Jesus. She begged Him for help. And as a result, her walk with Christ grew at that time more profoundly than it had before. She experienced His presence. And she began to list ways in which she could love her enemies. And she baked them cookies. And she offered free babysitting. And she invited them up mom over for coffee and as she did her love for them actually began to grow and abound and she began to have compassion upon the life that they have been given and the pressures in which they faced and the fact the day came when she had to return to the mission field she actually wept because she was leaving these neighbors whom she once hated we are to have an uncommon love, a supernatural love. It has been said to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. I wonder, Christian, in what way is your love distinct? In what way is your love different? Do you love any differently than the world loves? I think the reality is we sometimes find it hard to love our even our close friends We're so self-protective that even loving those who are close to us, we find difficult. And when Jesus goes on and on about loving our enemies and this active, sacrificial, uncommon love, and it leads me to wonder, where in the world are we going to find the ability to actually do this? Where can we find power to be like this? And I think it's to this that Jesus refers to as we consider lastly a divinely empowered love. Note verse 35. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend... Expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And Jesus here is motivating us. In fact, He says, when you love your enemies and you expect nothing in return from them, you will receive something in return. For great is your reward, He says. What credit is it to you when you love like the world? None. But when you love like me, when you love your enemies expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great. And so he motivates us that we might have our eyes once again upon heaven, even as we considered last week. But there's a second motivation in this verse. He says here that you will show yourself to be the sons of the Most High God. It's He comes, and and sometimes you might read it that if we love this way, we'll become sons of the Most High. But in the next verse, he actually calls God our Father. He's already assuming that we are sons of the Most High. He's assuming that something amazing and supernatural has taken place, that you and I have been adopted into God's family, that we have become his sons and daughters of the Most High God. And he comes, and Jesus says, now show the world what that looks like. Show the world what you really are. Show the world that you are God's children. Show the world this contrast between you and them that is too hard to ignore, that they would look at you, and even if they do not know me, they would say, if there is a God, this woman knows him because what she does is not natural. That we would not curse to those who curse us or attack those who attack us. God says it's not how we're to live. Hate those who, who who do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And, it's proof that you're God's children. It's proof that you have been adopted. You know why? Because it shows the family resemblance. Well, what is God like? Well, he's a lover of his enemies. Well, in fact, you know that at the end of verse 35 For he is what? Kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who is the ungrateful and the evil? Well, we are. Who has he been kind to? Us. In fact, He's not only kind, note verse 36, but be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He is merciful to us. You understand that not one of us would be a follower of Christ. Not one of us would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life if God did not love His enemies. That if God did not do good to those who oppose Him. And when you receive that mercy, you who are ungrateful and evil actually become his sons and daughters. You know, the Bible says you are evil. And it says you are God's child. Every religion in this world says you're either one or the other. You're either evil or you're the beloved child. Christ comes and says, no, you need to understand you are both. You are an enemy who has been adopted. You are an adopted enemy. Now, does that reality, when we take hold of that, should have profound impact upon the way we live? Can you imagine, for instance, if you stood before a king and you were a convicted rebel, there was no doubt you have cursed this king, you have rebelled against this king, you have violated this king's law, and you were as guilty as anyone. And knowing that, this king looks at you and says, I have decided to give you mercy. You get mercy. I All your crimes, even though they are many, I am forgiving them all. I wonder, would that change you? Would that change the way you live towards that king? Imagine that you're walking home with this new sense of joy that you thought when you were in a moment, were going to the gallows, and now you're a free man, forgiven of all your crimes. And the king's carriage pulls up next to you. And the king gets out and he says, You know why I forgave you? You know why I wiped all your sins away? Because I love you. In fact, I love you so much, I want you to become my son. I want you to become my daughter. I want to be your father and provide for you the rest of your life. Would that change you? Would that change you next week when someone curses you? Or when someone does one of the many things that you have done against this king. You see, we're to love our enemies because Christ loved you when you were his enemy and we are to show the world what Jesus is like. I understand people don't deserve this kind of love. Neither did you or I. I think it's only when you take this in, only when you understand this, that you are an adopted enemy will you have the power to actually love your enemies in this world. Where else are you going to find the emotional humility to turn the other cheek? Where else are you going to find that, that, that meekness to actually turn the other cheek to someone who insults you and who abuses you? It's only in the understanding that you once abused God, that you once were God's enemy, and you think he's wrong, but I was wrong, and she's cursing me, but I once cursed God. And it's only when we understand who we are that we can have the humility in our heart not to protect our own pride and our own reputation. And where else are you going to find the emotional wealth To turn the other cheek. Right? Where, Where else are you gonna be able to say, I don't care if you insult me? Because I am God's son. You take everything I have, but you cannot take my treasure. It is God and I am his. So no matter what you do to me, no matter what you take from me, you cannot touch that which is only the most important thing to me. I am God's. You see, when you see this truth, that you are this adopted enemy, you who are evil and ungrateful have received kindness and mercy, that you will want to share it to those who are ungrateful and evil to you. And where do you see that God is kind and merciful to the ungrateful and the evil? Well, there is no better place than the cross. On that night when Jesus was arrested, men show up with clubs and torches and grab hold of him. Remember, Peter takes out his sword and he lops off that servant's ear. This man who's taking Jesus to die. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And he reaches up and touches that man's ear. And he restores his ear. You think that would end the arrest right there? This man just put an ear on a man's head. But no, they drag him away. He's being dragged away. He looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you not know if I wanted to? I could call a legion of angels here and kill everyone on this garden. They're not going to kill me. I'm giving my life, I'm God. I'm laying it down. Do you not understand that the glands that they will use to spit upon me and the muscles they will use to hit me, I am holding those together by my very word. Do you not understand that the nails they will drive through my hands and feet, I have made those by my divine creed. Do you not understand that the tree that I will be nailed to is a tree that I myself have created. They don't kill me. I am giving myself up. I am laying my life down. And so they dragged him before a court and they took his cloak And his tunic, too. And they slapped him in the face. And they beat him not once and not twice, but three times. And there was no retaliation. Right? My heart wants them to zap just one guy. Right? Just strike one guy dead and just to flex your muscle a little bit. But none of that. Because he's much better than I am. And they would drag him to a cross and nail him there and hoist him up in the sky, bleeding and naked. And you know what he does? He prays for those who abuse Him. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Abused, and He's praying. Cursed, and He's blessing. Hurt, and He's doing good. Hated, and He's loving. And right before He dies, He declares with a loud voice, It is finished. You know what's finished? Taking all the wrath of God... All the punishment of God on sinners upon Himself. Absorbing the wrath of God for who? You. Me. Taking that upon Himself so that I might be forgiven and that you might receive mercy and that he might be kind to us. We, enemies of God, have become children of God. Do you want to know how to love your enemies? Where are you going to find the power to love your enemies? You have to live at the cross. The degree to which you appreciate your salvation is to the degree in which you will act like your Savior. And about a month ago, I asked this church, and, I, and we were in Luke 6, and, and I, I, my heart, as I shared with you, is I want us to become desperate for God to work in our lives. I want us to become more restless. I just have this sense that we're just so comfortable here. And I want God to break us a little bit. And you know what I appreciate about this passage so much is it gives us an opportunity to become desperate, doesn't it? Because who's doing this? Right? Who's doing Luke six twenty seven through 36? Because I'm not. I'm like failing every time I have this opportunity. There's a struggle going on in my heart. And my hope is that some who hear this will find this so compelling and so desirable that there will be a yearning in your soul and say, yes, Lord, I want to be like that, but I can't. How can I do this? Help me. Help me. And that you would call out to Him and pray to Him and beg Him to make you like Jesus. Of course, there's some here I trust who will see this and maybe shrug their shoulders listen to this and say, well, that, that sounds nice. Maybe I'll tinker at it. But you know in your heart, you're, you're not going to try. You're not going to live for this. And by Tuesday, you'll forget we even considered it. I'm sad for you. Because Christ wants so much for you. The way to follow Christ is the blessed life. And you are turning your back upon the blessed life. And there are some here who when I asked you to think of your enemies you thought, well, there's just too many. Or maybe there's just one, and that person is particularly evil and painful in your life. And, and maybe you're, you're even mad at God. And maybe you're thinking, God, why, why won't you take this away? And I don't know the answer to that, friend, but I do understand that God, in these painful times, is, usually uses them to make us more like Jesus than any other time. So you wonder why God is treating me this way. Well, at the very least, he's giving you an opportunity to die to yourself. To become desperate for him. To show the world what Jesus is like. To remember that you have received mercy. That you're his child and now go walk like Jesus. And there's some here who I imagine will listen to this and say, there's no way I'm going to do this. There's no way I'm going to do good to those who hate me. I'm not going to bless those who curse me. It sounds weak to you. It's offensive. And I find it interesting how Jesus begins this passage. Look up in verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear. Isn't that interesting? It almost implies that Jesus understands that some will listen to this, but they won't be able to hear it. They won't be able to see the beauty in it. And I want you to understand, if you hear these words and you say, no, I'm not doing this. You are rejecting Christ as your Lord. You know, for Him to be a Lord means He is the one who commands you. And you say, no, I'm not going to do it. You, I'm not going to obey you. You reject Him. And you reject Him because you are ungrateful and evil. And do you know how God is to those who are ungrateful and evil? He's kind. He's merciful. And He would give you mercy this very moment if you would despair of your rebellion against Him if you would bow your knee to King Jesus. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Well, Ernest Gordon eventually was released from that prison camp. And he made his long trip back home, traveled by train through Asia. And along the way, as it happened, he ended up next to a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers. Gordon writes about them saying, they were in a shocking state. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuge of war. There was nowhere to go, no one to care for them. These were the enemy. How do they respond to these POWs? Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two. And with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. We knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word at which an allied officer exclaimed what bloody fools you all are don't you realize that those are the enemy yes we realized it and that was the point we're called to love our enemies where do they learn to love like this it's how Christ has loved them I wonder friends who are your enemies will you love them like Jesus father in heaven we thank you for your word We thank you that Jesus calls us to do things beyond ourselves. Will that please, will you just work in us, Father, through your spirit to make us desperate to become what Christ calls us to be? We want to love like we have been loved. God, I freely confess I was your enemy. I cursed you over and again. I hated you so did my brothers and sisters here in their own way. And yet, rather than rejection and damnation, we who are ungrateful and evil have received mercy and grace through the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help that win our hearts. Help that to transform us that we might be like Christ. I know there are friends here, Father, my brothers and sisters, whose life is very hard and there is uh, a great deal of oppression in their life from those who would do them harm. Father, will you not give them strength through the cross to be like Jesus? Will you not create Hamilton Baptist Church a place of love that the world does not recognize and yet finds so compelling that Christ might be glorified? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.